Bible reading this morning is from Luke chapter 2, verses 39 to 52. When Joseph and Mary had done everything required by the law of the Lord, they returned to Galilee to their own town of Nazareth. And the child grew and became strong. He was filled with wisdom, and the grace of God was upon him. Every year his parents went to Jerusalem for the feast of the Passover. When he was 12 years old, they went up to the feast according to the custom. After the feast was over, while his parents were returning home, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem, but they were unaware of it. Thinking he was in their company, they travelled on for a day. Then they began looking for him among their relatives and friends. When they did not find him, they went back to Jerusalem to look for him. After three days, they found him in the temple courts, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. Everyone who heard him was amazed at his understanding and his answers. When his parents saw him, they were astonished. His mother said to him, Son, why have you treated us like this? Your father and I have been anxiously searching for you. Why were you searching for me, he asked. Didn't you know I had to be in my father's house? But they did not understand what he was saying to them. Then he went down to Nazareth with them and was obedient to them. But his mother treasured all these things in her heart. And Jesus grew in wisdom and stature and in favour with God and men. Had this morning. It's been wonderful to see everyone here and to, uh, to gather and bring praises uh, to God's name. Well, this morning we're thinking about uh, the theme of missing peace as we continue this little series in the lead up to Christmas. And I don't know about you, but saying, as we've heard already this morning, next Sunday is Christmas Day, hasn't that just seemed to have crept up really quick this year? I know it happens every year, it gets faster and faster. Um, maybe because we've lingered on the theme for most of December and part of November, you might be thinking, no, it's been dragging and finally it's here. I don't know. But for me, it's sort, it certainly caught us out a couple of times in the office, thinking about dates and so on, and suddenly, no, 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 we've, it's next weekend or it's in two weekends. So next Sunday, of course, is Christmas Day, and it's come up really quick. It's a day of great celebration. I think part of it is like anything that you look forward to, um, you make it bigger than what it actually is. We know our day, our year's broken up into 365 days. Um, so each day is the same, same time frame, 24-hour period. But when there's something that's special and, and an enormous important event, we look forward to it and we single it out above all the other days. And that's perhaps partly why uh, it, uh, it catches us by surprise when it's suddenly here. And equally so, how quick will Monday come around, Boxing Day? And we'll think, well, what was all that about? What happened to Christmas this year? But Christmas Day is a special day. It's a special day, particularly for those of us who know Jesus, who know the story, we know it's all about him, and we know that that is the focus for Christmas Day. That's what makes it special. Um, it's, it's even a special day for those who aren't committed to Jesus or who you know, don't have that as a priority or a focus. They still see Christmas Day and they benefit from the blessing of Jesus coming into the world but they still see it as a significant day. It's a special day, not because of the date or anything um, specific in detail like that, but because of the historical event that we remember. It's what took place in real-time history. 
that makes it truly remarkable for us as Christians. It's the, 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 the story itself, a birth, not only Jesus, but the beginning of an entire uh, new religion that has quite um, uniquely shaped the very course of history over the last 2,000 years. Countless millions of people right throughout that time uh, have, have changed, they've been transformed, they've transformed their communities, uh, their social networks, um, and they've, they've you know, um, improved their, their culture, all sorts of things as a result of what took place on that first Christmas. The Christmas event is truly remarkable. It's a remarkable story that cannot be ignored, whether you uh, choose to believe it or not. But if you ever pause to consider how the Christmas story might help us find the missing piece that we all seem to know is missing in most every other day of the year. Um, this theme of missing peace, we've explored um, the lack of peace that we see so often just not present around the globe. And as we've prayed already and remembered uh, those who are suffering uh, that lack of peace and, um, and dying as a result, um, we looked uh, more recently at um, relational peace that we often lack, just in our one-to-one relationships. Well, this morning, uh, our focus is on everyday peace. What does the coming of Jesus into our world have to say to everyday circumstances? What does the coming of Jesus beyond that special day that we celebrate next week, um, what, what, does that, what does that mean for the peace that we long for in our ordinary, everyday lives? Well, there's no doubt that there was a plenty of spectacular things that happened around that day, around the birth of Jesus. And uh, we like to, in our nativity scenes, uh, and like Chinese whispers, it all gets muddled up a little bit. Um, so don't, that's why I say we don't get too obsessed with, with details, because um, who knows, it was a long time ago. But we sort of jam it all together, don't we? Uh, a whole lot of things that all happened around that time, usually spread out over time, but we sort of put them all on the one night of Christmas Eve, and then obviously at some point past midnight, Jesus is born, making it Christmas Day, and we have these spectacular displays, don't we? to help us remember this event. And with good reason. We can read about the spectacular activity that happened uh, as Luke's Gospel testifies. Uh, The other Gospel accounts too record a a number of these things. I I mean, think about it. A a young virgin who conceives a child by the will of God, which causes this outrageous social scandal at the time, it threatened to break up her relationship with her fiancé, Joseph. I mean, that's pretty... That's spectacular in the sense of it's, it's remarkable. Um, there's the spectacular record of, of how um, the birth of Jesus fulfilled this ancient prophecy in so many ways beyond coincidence, a prophecy that had been spoken 700 years earlier by the prophet Isaiah. Uh, what about um, these every ordinary day shepherds out, as we saw illustrated at our kids' um, display here, washing their socks by night? Um, and... Uh, <laughs> All sorts of colours, the socks were. Um, but, you know, as they cared for their flocks, right, the, this spectacular angelic host, um, the heavenly hosts appear. One angel first and then a whole lot join that angel to sing the praises, to bring this message of good news, of peace that's come into the world to all those whom God's favour rests. Then, of course, there's this visiting magi, a bunch of uh, very strong... Well, 
for the culture at the time, very strange uh, people from a, a completely different culture, another part of the world. God reveals to them what's taking place in Bethlehem, and they turn up. They come from foreign lands. They, they're bearing strange gifts. They come to worship. And, and, and they're worshipping a king right from the start. They know uh, this prophecy. God's revealed it to them. And they know that a king's been born and they need to come and, and worship him. This is spectacular. And we combine all these things, which makes for this spectacular spectacle, often captured in the way that we imagine things to have happened at that time. There's not a lot of normal and mundane happening here at first when we look at it. It can be hard to relate, perhaps, this one big event to our ordinary lives. Maybe this is just helpful escapism. There'll be some people that think that's what it is. This is just another religious thing where you just try and sort of distract yourself with a whole lot of glitter and glamour and fuss about something that happened and a whole lot of mythical, half-historical, half-mythical stories uh, that happen. We sort of do it as a form of entertainment or, or, or escapism from the drudgery of life. Um, yeah, what, 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 what is it um, about this event, um, this dramatic Christian story? that can help us find peace in our ordinary day lives. Well, let's go back to what the Bible says. There's a limited account of what we heard earlier, as Janine read it, from Luke chapter 2, a little bit later on after the birth. Um, and as the story goes, soon after Jesus was born, he and his family, we know, had to flee to Egypt. Rumours uh, and accounts of his birth um, circulated, and more importantly, um, the particular nature of who he was that others from other lands, as well as the Jewish people, some Jewish people, had come to realise that this was a king, the promised Messiah, born to Israel, the fulfilment of prophecy. And this outraged the secular government of the day, like, um, I, wouldn't, I shouldn't say most secular governments, because that's not true, but like most despots or, you know, dictatorial uh, leaders, uh, Herod too was a complete nut job. And... Um, he was ruthless and he was paranoid and he wanted to neutralise any threat to his power, uh, to the rule that he had. And we know the story, it's, it's a horrific part, soon after, uh, in a number, uh, within, within a two-year period at least, where he puts this edict out to have all firstborn babies who've been born in the last two years put to the sword, just to, to, to cover it all and to get rid of any threat of a newborn king. And while the Bible doesn't give us much detail about those years in Egypt, we know that that's where this young family, Mary and Joseph and Jesus, grew. And it's been the fascination and speculation of what actually happened for many people over the centuries. In fact, even back close to Jesus' times, there were others that wrote Gospels, small g, inverted commas, um, along with the Apostles, Matthew, Mark, Luke and John. Um, there were a number of them that would write these accounts of what they thought happened to Jesus, uh, like when he was in Egypt um, and other parts of the world too as an adult. Um, and, and these false gospels tried to give an account of those early years. And what's interesting about them, they're often called Gnostic gospels, which just means gospels about knowledge. So Gnosticism is this idea that's kind of like, um, in fact, yes, think about this today, um, this idea that somehow there's some kind of deeply spiritual superior knowledge that people can access in order to be enlightened more about the truth, about the divine and God and so on. They're called Gnostic Gospels, they're not the true Gospels, which are far more uh, accurate and down-to-earth and historical. But these Gnostic Gospels, that simply means hidden knowledge, uh, one in particular is called the Infancy Gospel of Thomas. 
And this is all about speculation about what might have happened with Jesus as a child. And it, and it writes stories about him doing really odd things. Now, I'm sure some of you, if you've ever focused on this yourselves, might have come up with similar ideas and stories or thoughts about what Jesus got up to as a child. Um, there's one theory that he brought clay birds to life. You know, he used to just sort of practice whatever divine powers he had being God in the person, which means all divine powers, um, and brought to life clay birds. Um, interestingly, the Islamic Quran mentions, has a reference to this as well. Um, other accounts say that Jesus did all sorts of miracles, that he would tease his mother um, and stir her up, and some of our modern accounts of that time will sort of uh, toy with that idea, just trying to highlight that Jesus was uh, fully human and fully God and was probably a playful person as well. Um, but other Gnostic Gospels tell stories of Jesus uh, as an adult too, equally bizarre and, and quite uncharacteristic of what the other four Gospels, written by the apostles who knew him, wrote about. The question we're asking here this morning is this. When the family of Jesus returned from Egypt to Nazareth, what kind of life did Jesus continue to live? Was it as spectacular as that event of him coming into the world? Well, despite the musings from other so-called Gospels, in the Apostle Luke's Gospel, there's more of an ordinary account of Jesus and his growing years. In fact, our reading that we just had in Luke 2, verses 39 to 40, is about the only one that's actually recorded. So it's worth listening to and it's worth learning from. And what we know more generally is that Jesus actually grew up in, in a poor Jewish home, uh, in a hard-working Jewish home, from his hometown of Nazareth. It was in a rural area uh, where people fished and farmed. It's here that Jesus took on the trade, the family trade, the Joseph, who was a carpenter, his earthly father. Joseph would have taught him those skills. Mark um, chapter 6 verse 3 uh, indicates this. But there's this one account that's a little more detailed about Jesus at the age of 12. And on this occasion, Joseph and Mary, they'd taken their annual journey to the capital of Jerusalem to worship there at the temple. This is what uh, was the Jewish custom. And as they left to return to Galilee... They began that journey with crowds of others, okay? So people come from all around the area, they come to the capital, they, they participate in the worship, they have their sins forgiven, and then they go back to their villages. Now, this is like a big community. This isn't bad parenting, you know, when you think, wow, he was missing for three days before they kind of, you know, or for at least the whole trip. It said later that evening, they realised he wasn't with them, you know? Presumably at this stage, uh, he probably wasn't an only child at this stage, so there's an excuse. But you, you, you get the picture, right? This is a community, and everyone sort of gathers, and by evening you might do a head count before you go to bed, and they realise Jesus isn't with them. And so as they left in a hurried way, um, they head back towards Jerusalem to search uh, for their son in the busy city. It took them three days. That's remarkable. Can you imagine the panic? Mary and Joseph, probably more Mary than Joseph, but anyway, the, the panic between Mary and Joseph as parents looking for their son for three days in a busy capital city and not being able to find him. Verse 48 reminds us of this. It's not hard to imagine how concerned they would have been. You'd be frantic. But notice how when they do finally find Jesus in the temple, notice how he responds to their concern. He does uh, more than uh, most adventurous 12-year-olds might do. Or actually, he does, he does the same as what most adventurous 12-year-olds might do. You know, when your parents sit up and go, where have you been? You know, we lost you in panic. I oh, know I wasn't lost. I knew exactly where I was all, all, the whole time. Which is kind of what Jesus says in Luke 2.49. He says, no, he wasn't lost. He knew exactly where he was. Thanks very much, mum and dad. I've got this. I'm here. 
in my father's house. Jesus actually behaves in a way that we also don't expect of most 12-year-olds. It turned out Jesus had stayed back in Jerusalem in the temple to be in his, at the time, what was the physical representation of the presence of God for his people. And this makes sense, knowing that he was 12 years of age. You know, it's kind of one of those first-off things that we do around that age where we sort of indicate our independence from our parents. Maybe you can think of a number of fastilier things that you might have done at that age other than go to the temple to be with God. But it's an important time of transition for any Jewish male. Twelve was the age when the community stopped seeing them as children and, in fact, it was a marker. It was a clear marker. You were children up to 12. When you turned 12, uh, you became considered a young adult male and you were treated accordingly and expected to respond accordingly in that community. And so there's a sense of starting to think independently from mum and dad. And when a young person asks questions about their identity and their person in, and their purpose in life, this, is, this all sort of happens around that age. What do you want to do? What do you want to be? Where are you going? Where did you come from? Although you, you should have figured that out by now um, in conversations with your parents. But what it is you want to get out of life, that's kind of typical around that age. But in the case of 12-year-old Jesus, his parents find him sitting in the most peculiar place. He's sitting there amongst these Super educated, enormously powerful religious leaders. And he's listening to them. But not only is he listening to them, as verses verses 46 to 47 tell us, he's also asking them questions and they were moored with him. They're sitting there just, I'm sure they're thinking, who is this child? But not only who is this child, they're responding um, peer to peer with his, his questions and his insights into God's word. This situation would have absolutely confronted Mary and Joseph considerably. It's one thing to be thinking independently, you know, wanting to be a little bit older. It's another thing to be sitting in the company of highly educated and experienced community leaders and engaging with them, holding your own in conversation. And these are basically Jesus' first words that we have recorded, that we have recorded in the Gospels. And they show us something. They show us that Jesus was already at 12, highly self-aware. At 12 years of age, Jesus knew that Israel's God, that Yahweh, was his real father. He refers to him in verse 49 as my father. I want to say this morning in terms of missing peace in everyday life, is that not the bedrock of where we might find peace in everyday life? Having the awareness of who you are, having the awareness of your identity, not in yourself, not in your background, not in your upbringing, not in your feelings but having your identity in your heavenly Father. For us, very different to Jesus, I might add, the one who created you. Jesus wasn't created, he was God in the flesh, a mystery that confounds us all and that we hold in tension. But for you and I, that's the lesson surely from here. We can experience the bedrock of everyday peace in knowing who we are in our heavenly Father. We know by the time Jesus was 30 as a young adult, we knew that he knew he was God's son. Remember, at his baptism, um, he, de- he was declared to be God's beloved son. God witnessed the baptism because it was actually a baptism for the forgiveness of sins, which Jesus didn't need to do. He's sinless. And so God vindicated that by saying, um, I'm, this is my son, my beloved son, in whom I am well pleased. What about when he faced temptation by the Satan, who, who himself started going, hang on a minute, this one's different. 
I think this is the Son of God. If you're the Son of God, you know, you throw yourself off the mountain and the angel will come and save you. Satan, in his temptation of Jesus in the desert, had an inkling. And so Jesus would have known, oh, I'm, it's not if I'm the Son of God, I am the Son of God and I'm not buying into your temptation. Jesus, he clearly knew by that stage, but here he clearly knew God as Father. And a result of that would have been because of the ordinary family life that he grew up in. There are two things to take home this morning from this short account of Jesus as a young boy. First of all, growing up, Jesus' life, his ordinary life, commends ordinary and everyday life to all of us as a great way to grow our relationship with God. Jesus was raised in a godly family that loved him, uh, where he would have been introduced to and studied the scriptures. Isn't that amazing? Think about this. I'm a bit distracted here, but think the living, the word of God becomes flesh. He's reading the living word. I mean, that, that just blows my mind. He's reading God's word, God's holy word. He's the living word. That just blows your mind. So let me, let me get back on track. Does it blow your mind or just me? Okay. It's remarkable. The living word, reading God's written word. But Jesus was raised in this godly family. His birth might have been spectacular for all those wonderful reasons we've looked at. And it amazed people. But his growing years were far more ordinary and everyday. Living in a faithful, faithfully committed religious home. For the most part, life was typical of many devout Jews of the day. What about us today in our culture? Christmas is also a special time of year, isn't it? It's a season, a break from the ordinary often. It's time for holidays. Uh, things tend to slow down. If you work at a church that has a school on site, things go incredibly quiet and peaceful. It's wonderful during the work week. Um, amen, Evan? Yep, we can testify that. And no doubt teachers too think exactly the same thing. I know our executive who continue to work through the holidays go, oh, and they get a lot more work done for the new year. Um, but beyond that, most of life is ordinary, isn't it? We've got our jobs to do, we've got our relationships usually to work at, we've got the daily, weekly, monthly grind of housework, mowing lawns, washing the car, doing the dishes, uh, the laundry, shopping, uh, sports, whatever it is we entertain ourselves with and if there's time, exercise. But we see from this unique account in Jesus' life as a young boy that God uses the ordinary daily things in life to grow us and not just the spectacular seasons. You know, in two weeks today, we'll be celebrating, from today, we'll be celebrating a new year. We'll be celebrating uh, the new year, and often there's an opportunity to sort of recalibrate our lives. I'm looking forward to Share Sunday, uh, hearing what God's been up to in, in, in our lives as a church here, what he's been speaking to us, and how we can be encouraged by that. But I wonder what opportunities, as we face a new year, might lie before us. As parents, grandparents, as carers, uncles, aunties, as brothers, sisters, as kids, as families, as singles, no matter who we are, what opportunities lie before us to really focus on the mundane, the daily rhythms in life in which we can see and experience God's peace? Mums and dads, how can you bring that into your families? How can you bring that as daily rhythms? in your families. You know, so often we get caught up, don't we, in this selfish world of which we all contribute, of viewing life as a burden. It's, it's this chore. It's this, um, we just got to trudge through it. And we hunker after these single events or these opportunities to look forward to, to give us hope, 
to make sense of the mundane and to distract us from it. And that's not the life God's called us to. That's the life that produces consumerism. It's the life that we get so easily sold and preached to and all of us get caught up in it. But God wants us to know peace in our everyday lives. What can we do to embrace the ordinary? What can we do to embrace the mundane and to even see God at work in these things? Or maybe if we just take an example from Jesus' life growing up and what we see evidenced in him as a 12-year-old in the temple here, maybe we could do a little bit more uh, discipline in our personal engagement with the Scriptures, the living Word of God, the written Word of God, who speaks of the living Word of God. Maybe we can uh, take more time out to pray with God as we've been encouraged this morning earlier. Maybe it could be listening uh, to good teaching and preaching or podcasts, you know, as many of the, the great wisdoms of the world that do often speak truths and have some great sights for us. What about uh, regular patterns of listening to, um, to others who, who, who specialise in areas to do with uh, God and faith and Christian life and, and the world in which we live? Maybe it could be connecting more relationally to your brothers and sisters in Christ as you come into a new year. Um, hooking up with a life group maybe for the first time or maybe um, changing and mixing up a life group and um, multiplying, you know, dividing in half and inviting others in, for example. So often we look to the spectacular and the thrilling in order to strengthen our relationship with God when all along he's been there for us in the everyday. The second thing we can take from this story is we also see the boy Jesus had a very different perspective on God's presence to his parents, right? His parents are far more like you and I. A circumstance has happened in our lives and we panic and we go to, I've just got to fix this, I've got to do something about this or I'm out of my depth here. Look at Jesus, he's not panicked. If anyone should be panicking, surely it would be a 12-year-old lost in a massive capital city in the first century. But he's not. We can understand Mary and Joseph's anxiety in losing their son, but have a look at how Jesus responded. He didn't think he was lost at all. He knew he was safe. He knew he was with his father. He's kind of got that, almost that Zen-like, I know where I'm supposed to be and this is where I'm supposed to be. I'm in the presence of my heavenly father. Now, some might say, oh, that's just 12-year-old naivety. They had no idea of the dangers they were at as we smacked them all the way home. We, we don't do that today, but I've heard of generations past doing certain things like that. But, you know, usually with the words too, like, how many times have I... Come? Anyway. Now I'm just having flash, childhood flashbacks, it's alright. <laughs> so this is more than just childhood naivety. This is evidence by Jesus of this close and trusting relationship he has with God. Whatever happens, Jesus uh, trusted God as his heavenly father, as his good father in heaven. And this is unique because of the mystery that Jesus is God, right? He's also the son of God in this incarnated form. It's a mystery but we can learn from him how we too can, as children of God, as daughters and sons of God, how we can also trust him as our good heavenly father. Remember those powerful prayers, those words that he, that he prayed powerfully, desperately, as a young adult at the other end of his life, in the Garden of Gethsemane from Luke chapter 23, verse 46. Those words, um, Father, if there's anything that can be done, take this cup away from me as he faced his imminent death. What about as he hung on the cross and gave up his last words? Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. 
See, through Jesus, we're brought into the same relationship with God as our good heavenly Father too. Just like Jesus, we can grow in our love and our trust of God each and every day. We can put down deep roots of peace with God. Not just in the spectacular things we look forward to or long for or hope to see, but in the ordinary times, which prepares us for the tough times and challenges that comes our way in life. I know that maybe a 12-year-old boy may be better at having this kind of simple, trusting, reliant relationship with God than, than many adults do, and perhaps we've got to work harder at it the older we get. But Mary and Joseph, they learned something the day they found Jesus in the temple in Jerusalem. They learned that their son was truly at peace in no matter what tragic circumstances or anxious circumstances he found himself in. He was at peace in the presence of his father. Well, with great joy and anticipation this week, I want to encourage you, church, may we enjoy the wonder, the celebration, as we continue to look forward to that great day. And I know we pass this anticipation on to our kids, don't we? You know, Christmas is only how many sleeps away? Um, but may we also pass on to our kids how we can know and trust God as our Heavenly Father in the average, in the mundane, and in every moment of the day that God gives us. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you that you sent the Prince of Peace into this world, your Son, Jesus. We thank you for the account that speaks to us, gives us an insight of, of a, a Jesus we don't usually focus on. We see him as our Lord and our Saviour, the risen Lord and Saviour, the Saviour of the world through his death on the cross. And we, we often think of him as a baby, a helpless baby dependent upon his parents uh, for sustenance at this time of Christmas. But we thank you for the account here of Jesus as a 12-year-old. Thank you for what we can learn about his trust as your son and we thank you for the example that he serves to us who follow him as our Lord and Saviour of the trust and the peace that we can know in a relationship with you. Father, we ask for your peace uh, to be made known in our hearts and in our minds as we focus on you, as we read your word, as we pray with you and to you, uh, as we worship you in the mundane. Help us with great joy to become people not of um, ang anxiousness, not of despair, not of hopelessness, but people of quiet, calm, strong, confident peace. And we ask this for your glory and your kingdom. In Jesus' name, amen.